Hello and welcome to this Bible study on 1 Thessalonians. I'm Don Smith, and I'm happy that you've joined us in this study. The first thing that we need to do is to think about why we are doing this, right? What is the, the purpose of an in-depth study of the Scriptures? Uh, we're used to uh, hearing the Scriptures at, uh, at church. We're used to reading little sections of Scriptures in our daily devotions. And so the question is, like, why is it important for us to be able to dig deeply into the Scriptures, to spend the time and the energy that it takes to, um, to really try and understand them? And so I have four reasons why. And the first is to gain a deep and practical understanding of the Scriptures. When you hear a scripture out of its context, a little, you know, a paragraph or two when you're at church, or a paragraph or two in your daily devotional, you don't understand sometimes the context. You might not even recognize the name of the book. You might not even know whether it's an Old Testament reading or a New Testament reading if you're not familiar with the scriptures. And so it's interesting when you, uh, you know, when the, when the person says or when the book says, this reading is from the book of Philippians. If you don't know what the book of Philippians is about, or who wrote it, or what the context is for that book, then it, it really changes the significance of that scripture. Whereas if it says, uh, this is a reading from Philippians, then you think, oh, this is a letter from St. Paul, and he wrote it while he was in prison. And it's about unity, and, it, and, and he's giving thanks for them and for their faithfulness in the gospel. Okay, I'm ready to listen to the scripture now. See, it's that little shift, that little change. And then also, of course, in that daily devotional, being able to read it um, in a way that you can get more out of it. St. <clears throat> Jerome said that ignorance of the scriptures were ignorance of Christ. And, of course, we know that the scriptures are the word of God. They are the inspired word of God. And as such, God speaks to us through them. He reveals himself to us. And so, obviously, our knowledge of the Lord and his love and grace and mercy towards us is going to grow as we encounter him in his word. And so, having a deep understanding of the scriptures means having a deep understanding of God himself. So that's the first reason. The second reason is to learn how to study the scriptures by asking the right questions and knowing where to find the answers. <clears throat> Lots of times you can read through a scripture. It's really amazing because I do it myself where I just read through and, uh, and I don't notice any details. There'll be sometimes there's words that I don't know what that word means, so I just kind of skip it. Or it'll mention people, and I'll think, oh, I don't know who those people are, so I'll just skip it. Uh, there's all of these uh, the things that happen, uh, and we don't ask, you know, like, what happened before this? What happened after this? What was the apostles' response when Jesus said this? There's so many stories that we have in the scriptures. There's so many um, things that are, are revealed to us that I don't think we ever stop and think about what does this mean? How does this work? What did this look like? Right? And so asking questions, and it's almost like being really curious is a, is a key that opens up the scriptures for us to encounter them. Right? It changes when you just read a story and, and uh, you know, the apostles are in the storm and uh, Jesus is in the boat with them, but he's asleep. 
And when they finally are panicked enough that they think they're going to die, they wake him up. And his first question to them is like, well, where's your faith? Right? And then he calms the storm. It's like, like what, what was that experience like for them? What did, they, what did Jesus mean about having faith in that moment? Right? Why was Jesus asleep in a storm that made the apostles, who many of them were fishermen and spent their whole lives on a boat, imagine like that boat must have been rocking, right? And so you just, you, you enter into the story and ask questions. So, so we want a deep understanding of the scriptures. We want to learn how to read the scriptures by asking questions. And we want to learn how to practically apply the scriptural principles to our lives. And, and, and we do that by uh, gaining this understanding and making it uh, applicable to our daily lives. That's how it becomes practical, right? And so when you look at uh, the Apostle Paul and the work that he does in evangelization and how he proclaims the gospel in a hostile situation, then it's a role model for me, right? And, and Paul is so vulnerable in his letters that uh, he even explains his, the, the, the heart, right? He explains his motivations for doing stuff. And so, so it, it gives me an opportunity to examine my heart. It's like, wow, would I do that? Like, would I, do I have that type of heart too? It's kind of interesting, and we'll talk about this, that, that Paul says that we should imitate him, which is kind of interesting because usually we would think of, you know, we should imitate the Lord. And of course, that's Paul. What Paul is saying is imitate me as I am following the Lord or imitate the Lord's life in me. But he invites us to look at his practical human daily life as an example of how to live as a Christian. That's a very challenging thing. I don't know if, if, uh, if you and I would be comfortable saying, hey, you want to learn how to follow Christ? Just look at me, right? Just follow what I do, because I'm a really good example of how to do that. We, we, I don't think we'd be comfortable saying that, but Paul was. And see, there's, uh, there's something practical, right? And then, finally, we want to be able to learn how God speaks to us through the Scriptures. Because I've heard the Scriptures described as the Father's love letter to us that it is his revelation of, of not only his deeds and his doings, but it's a revelation of his heart. It's a revelation of his being. And a revelation personally of his love for you and I. I think the Catechism puts this really nicely in paragraph 104. And I, and I, and it's, I think it's cool because it actually quotes 1 Thessalonians, the book that we're about to study. It says, in sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength. For she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. I think that's a beautiful passage, uh, that the church finds nourishment. So you think about nourishment, and that's food. That's the stuff that gives you energy and uh, encouragement and, and sustenance. Uh, it's also her strength. And, uh, and the reason why is that she welcomes it. And this is the quote from, from 1 Thessalonians, not as a human word, but as for what it really is, right? The word of God. 
and <clears throat> and that God wants to meet his children and talk with them through the scriptures. And so as we're going through these passages, we're not just studying an ancient historical document, we're not just studying some theology, we're not just studying some history. We are listening. We are, we are attuned to what is the Father who loves me today saying to me right now through this passage. So, <clears throat> So in order to properly understand the scriptures, it's important to understand uh, the principle of, of uh, hermeneutics called context. And context, context, context is what it's all about. And the very first, uh, there's, there's three different levels of context. There's scriptural context and historical context and immediate context. The first one ha has to do with the scriptural context. And this is uh, putting whatever scripture you're reading into the context of the whole revelation of God found in the scriptures. You can find scriptures and pull them out of context and support just about anything that you would want to do or say, right? You can, uh, you know, you can take a scripture out of the Old Testament that says uh, we should, you know, uh, kill everybody who doesn't believe, <laughs> right? We should kill everybody who, who is an idolater because there are times when God instructs people to do that. And so we could pull that out of that context, pull it out of the context of the rest of the scriptures and use that to justify some really horrible things, right? And so there's, um, so you have to put it in the context of the whole revelation of God and understand the progressive revelation of God as the scriptures move forward in time. And so it, it relates to the whole, so in, in looking at, uh, at First Thessalonians, of course, uh, you know, whether something is found in the New Testament or Old Testament makes a huge difference. Is it before the fullness of the revelation in Christ or not? Um, the second level of context has to do with the historical context. The, uh, and so it's about who wrote it, when they wrote it, who they were writing to, what was the purpose of their writing. How did the people who received this uh, understand it in the context of their time and their history, right? And so it, uh, it really nails it down into the historical time uh, that the writing took place. This is important because there's a lot of things that are written that uh, we can look back at, right? And, and we would interpret it through our modern understanding of things. But it's important to have something in its historical context so that when we say Jesus said this, like, well, who is he talking to, right? What was the context of this conversation? Uh, and then, of course, backing it up, how does this fit into the context of the whole scripture? So, um, the last one is the immediate context. The, the chapters and the verses that are found immediately preceding or, uh, or immediately after the scripture that you're studying. This is incredibly important because um, there's a lot of scriptures in the, in the uh, Bible that you can only understand in their context, right? You can only understand in the larger story. Uh, it's amazing because, you, you know, the, the chapters and verses aren't inspired. And so there's lots of times when chapters, in, uh, in especially in Paul's writings, the chapter will begin with, therefore, right? So even if you're doing a really good, uh, you know, daily Bible reading thing, and so you read a, a chapter a day, right? And so you open the Bible, and, the, and your Bible reading for that day at the beginning of the chapter is, uh, therefore... <laughs> Well, unless you remember what you read the day before, then that therefore 
doesn't have any context, right? Because what Paul is saying is that what he's about to say now is based on what he has previously said. Uh, many of the books, well, you know, all the letters, but many of the books of the Bible were, were meant to be read uh, continuously uh, in, in one sitting. And it really changes uh, um, the, your understanding of a book to be able to read it all in one sitting because you notice things that you'd never notice otherwise. So if you read the Gospel of John in little tiny pieces, you might not notice that he does this thing with light and darkness. And he does it right from the first chapter all the way to the end, you know, that uh, the woman at the well is at the, the noonday, right? Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, comes to him at night, right? And those that dwell in darkness, you know, want to have their deeds hidden. And, and then there's people who welcome light. He does that all the way through the gospel. And so as you're reading through, you did it all in one sitting. You, after a while, you get the sense of like, John is, is really making a point about when things happen, whether they happen in the light or they happen in the darkness. Um, and so uh, being able to look at uh, that immediate context is really important. So let's practice now uh, with 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> so obviously the scriptural context of 1 Thessalonians is that it's in the New Testament. Uh, it's written by uh, the Apostle Paul. It's one of Paul's letters. Uh, and so it's in the context of his letters. It's, uh, it's one of the earliest Christian uh, documents in the canon that we have. It is written less than 20 years after the crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Less than 20 years. That's not a very long time. And so uh, the scriptural context is that uh, Paul, in, the, in these letters, is writing to the early churches, giving them instruction and encouragement on how to live the Christian life. <clears throat> of course, the, uh, if we begin to looking at the historical context, we're going to be looking at the author, who is St. Paul. St. Paul, I hope that you, uh, you remember his, uh, his early days was that he was a Pharisee, a very uh, zealous Pharisee who felt that the Christian interpretation of Jesus' life as the Messiah was wrong. He thought it was a heresy. He thought it was terrible that people believed that. And so he, uh, he persecuted early Christians, uh, arresting them and jailing them and overseeing even uh, an execution of one of the early leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And it's, uh, it's when he's going to Damascus to, uh, to make more arrests that uh, he encounters the Lord in this bright, shining light that blinds him. And he's blind for three days, and, uh, and a voice speaks to him from the light and says, uh, Why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And uh, the voice says, Jesus of Nazareth. And so uh, Paul's life radically changes at that point. His understanding, which was a thorough understanding, he must have had la uh, large portions of the Old Testament memorized, all of a sudden come into a different light and totally under uh, changing his understanding of his life and, and the scriptures and his, um, his uh, opposition to the Lord. And, um, and so he <clears throat> becomes eventually a missionary, and, and uh, he writes this letter to the Thessalonians during his second missionary journey. 
he, uh, he becomes a missionary and he takes his first journey. He travels around southern Turkey and he goes to different towns and preaches the Gospels and established churches. And then he returns to his home base, which is in Antioch, and eventually sets out on this second journey. And his, uh, he, he visits the churches he had already established. He travels up into northern Turkey. And it's in, uh, in northern Turkey that he has a dream of someone from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, uh, asking him for help. And so he takes that as the Lord's leading him to Greece. And so he uh, makes the shift from being in Asia to entering Europe. Right? So this, this major expansion of Christianity on a different continent now, uh, just by crossing this little body of water. And so Paul... Um, travels to Greece, modern-day Greece, and begins to preach the gospel. And, um, and so the, the cities that we encounter, he first arrives in Philippi. <clears throat> and, uh, and we're going to look at this more in, in context. But Philippi is the first city he goes to. And eventually he travels to Thessalonica and to Berea and to Athens. And so you, uh, he travels this loop around uh, this bay that separates Greece from Turkey. So we find the story of Paul arriving in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And of course, this is part of our historical context. Uh, to understand this letter, we have to understand his relationship with the Thessalonians, and this is where it begins. But of course, before... We even look at Acts chapter 17, we have to look at the immediate context, right? Because the immediate context is going to help us to understand Acts chapter 17. So, what happens in Acts chapter 16, right? And that's, that's you see how that works with the immediate context? So, in Acts chapter 16, Paul arrives in Philippi and he's preaching the gospel. We're, we're, it's not quite clear how long he's there, but uh, eventually... Uh, some people aren't happy with his preaching, as often happens with, uh, with Paul when he's traveling. Sometimes it's pagans because they realize that uh, people aren't going to go to the, uh, the uh, temples anymore and so that they're going to lose money, or the people who sell statues of idols and they're not going to have money anymore if people aren't worshiping idols. And Sometimes it's the Jewish people that don't believe that Jesus was Messiah and so that they think that Paul is wrong in preaching it. And so anyway, he's in Philippi and this, uh, he ends up of getting arrested and uh, and he gets arrested and and in chapter 16 we have, we have the story of him getting beaten with rods which is a Roman form of punishment where basically they took these hardwood sticks um, probably not as big as a baseball bat but but you get the you know you get the impression right so you have a hard hardwood stick um, and you'd get beaten all over your body with it by at least one Roman soldier, maybe two. You can imagine how painful that would be, right? And after he's beaten with rods, it says he was thrown into the inner dungeon of the prison. And it says that about midnight, he and Silas, who is the person he's traveling with at this time, were singing hymns and praises to God. And, and of course, whenever you're reading through the scriptures, you always want to pause and think, like, he just got beaten and thrown into prison, and they're singing praises to God, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that would be my response. I would probably be complaining to God, saying, like, God, I'm trying to preach your word here. Why do you make it so difficult, right? And, um, 
And it says that around midnight there's this earthquake and all the doors of the jail open and uh, the person who's in charge of the prison comes in and he immediately thinks that all prisoners have escaped and so he's ready to commit suicide because committing suicide would have been better what, than what would happen to him if all the prisoners escaped that were under his care. Uh, and Paul stops him and says, look, we're all here. Nobody's, nobody's escaped. And then he preaches the gospel to him. And, and you have, have this beautiful story of this, uh, this prison official converting and him and his entire family getting baptized. Which is really amazing. You think about um, Paul going through this horrific experience but then ending up being able to baptize the people who have put him into prison. I, I would think that he'd look back at it and say, wow, that was like, that, that was, God was working in that whole situation and it was worth going through the pain that I had to go through for these people to have eternal salvation brought to their households, right? There's a, like, there's trust there. There's a, there's a surrendering there to God's will. <clears throat> I hope that you, you, you're, you're thinking, oh, this is how you apply this personally, right? Because <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. It's like, wow, how would I respond in this situation? What, uh, how would I look back at this situation if I were Paul? So, uh, so after the, the prison person is uh, baptized, it, uh, uh, the, the city people come, the officials come, and they ask him to leave. And so, so, so that's the end of chapter 16. It ends with, they departed, <laughs> right? So chapter 17 begins, and it says, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Okay, so the city uh, is where the Thessalonians get their name and where the letter comes from. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. <clears throat> and Paul went in, as was his custom. So you pause there and you think, okay, wait a minute. He passed through two different cities, and then he stops in Thessalonica, and then it talks about the fact that there's a synagogue there. And so you, uh, you realize, like, okay, what Paul, Paul's M.O. here, the way that he works, is that he's looking for cities that have a Jewish synagogue in them because he knows this is the place to start, right? This is the place to begin preaching the gospel. And so he says uh, he was there for three weeks and that he argued with them from the scriptures explaining and proving what was, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach, who I proclaim to you, excuse me, is the Christ. So when, when it says that Paul's arguing from the scriptures, of course he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. And so... Um, Again, we have an opportunity to, to think like, okay, so what scriptures from the Old Testament would Paul have used for this, right? I mean, like, what was Paul from, I mean, imagine just using Old Testament scriptures, what could you do to prove that Jesus was the one for whom these prophecies were fulfilled? And of course, uh, one of the first ones you might think of would be um, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Isaiah 53 is the, the suffering servant. Um, and so it says, 
It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a f interesting story about that in the uh, in, earlier in the book of Acts, where uh, Philip encounters an Ethiopian, and, and, the, and the Ethiopian just happens to be reading Isaiah 53. And he says to Philip, do you know who this scripture is talking about? <laughs> right, talk about uh, a Holy Spirit moment. Another scripture, of course, that uh, Paul could use would be uh, Psalm 22. And, and that's where it says uh, things like, They have pierced my hands and feet. Which is really interesting, because, you know, when uh, uh, the cru crucifixion was a Roman uh, torture and, and execution method. Uh, it wasn't invented until hundreds of years after uh, David wrote this psalm, right? And so, so you have to wonder, it's like, what, did, what, was, what is David saying when he says about piercing hands and feet? I mean, like, that, like at that point in history, that wasn't a common, like, there was no context for that. And he goes on, he says, I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my, my clothing they cast lots. And, and of course, there's uh, there's there's many many of those scriptures that Paul could use, and uh, and telling the story of the crucifixion and the the resurrection, uh, so that he could demonstrate to these um, to these Jewish people at the synagogue, all the people gathered at the synagogue, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that it was God's purpose to send him to suffer and die and rise from the dead to deliver us from sin and death itself. So, so the scripture goes on, and it says, And some were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews, and not a few of the leading women. So when it's when this says some of them were persuaded, they're talking about the Jewish people uh, who attend this synagogue, and Paul is preaching primarily to them. But then it says, but the, there was a great many, so a few Jewish people converted, but then a great many of the devout Greeks. Um, so who are these devout Greeks, and what are they doing at a Jewish synagogue, right? And so there is this uh, uh, in in some places they're called God-fearers. And apparently there was a, a great many of the Greeks and Romans who were attracted to the Jewish faith, attracted to monotheism, attracted to uh, the God who is the creator and all-powerful, all-knowing being that is revealed in the Old Testament. And so they had renounced their idolatry and had come to some sort of faith, some level of belief in the God of the Jews. 
uh, and but but they hadn't become Jews yet, right? They hadn't taken the big leap of uh, of receiving circumcision and, and entering into that fullness. But they uh, they attended the synagogue. Some of them probably obeyed the the food rules. Um, they would have celebrated Jewish holidays, and so they even though they weren't Jews. <laughs> they had an understanding of the Jewish faith. And so it's interesting, so here we are in Thessalonica and it says some of the Jewish people believe, but a lot of the Greeks believe. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked fellows of the rabble, they gathered a crowd and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. So again, we have to ask questions, right? And so why are the Jews jealous? So you think about these Jewish leaders, they've come to this city, they've established a synagogue, and they're, being, they're having a, a great success, right? They're attracting all kinds of new Greeks into the faith and uh, drawing them towards the, uh, a relationship with the one true God. And then Paul shows up proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, which they obviously didn't believe. He hadn't convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah, so that would make him uh, spreading false teachings. And he is taking all of their Greek uh, potential converts away from them. And you think about this in terms of leadership, and, and you know, the more people you have, the bigger your numbers, the bigger your offering, the more you know, power and prestige you would seem to have. And so having Paul take these Greek uh, potential converts away uh, really upset these Jewish leaders. So they go out and uh, basically stir up uh, a riot. And, and they go to the house of Jason, who we haven't been introduced to yet, but in the very next verse it says Paul is staying at Jason's house. So, uh, so we don't know whether Jason is a, is a Jew or a Gentile or a Greek, but he extended hospitality to Paul and Silas. And so they're staying at his house, and so uh, they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, them would be Paul and Silas, out to the people. So, again, you have to take this with the perspective of Jason, who Paul has only been in the city for three weeks, right? And so Jason is probably a brand new believer. And his house is getting attacked. And in the very next verse, it says, when they could not find them, that's Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities. So, so I, I, I um, you're noticing, or I'm noticing, these are very violent words, right? They attack his house and then they drag him to the city authorities. Crying, these men have, who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. See how this is all Jason's fault. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So let's look at what the what the these what the accusations are. First of all, I think it's interesting that they describe Paul and Silas as the men who have turned the world upside down. And again, this is only twenty years. 
after the crucifixion and the resurrection. So these Jew Jews must have heard, uh, you know, through the grapevine, that everywhere Paul and Silas goes, there is this tremendous change takes place, right? So that they are turning the world upside down. Wouldn't it be awesome if that was an accusation that you could make against the church today? Wouldn't it be awesome if that was an accusation against you and I, that we were turning the world upside down? And you notice that Paul isn't doing this through political activism. He's not doing it through, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, powerful, prestigious uh, position with lots of money and power. He's doing it simply by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, um, <clears throat> this accusation they make against uh, Paul and Silas and Jason and whoever else is with Jason is a capital offense, right? That there is another king besides Caesar. Because there were no other kings besides Caesar. And if you proclaim there was a king besides Caesar, you are going to pay for it with your life. Uh, there, the, you know, the Roman rule was complete loyalty to Caesar. In fact, you know, at this point, Caesar would have declared himself a divinity and would have required worship, which was a problem, in, uh, obviously, in the early church. <clears throat> and so it says the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard this, right? Because if, if, uh, if the Roman authorities found out that someone in Thessalonica was, was uh, acknowledging a king beside Caesar, it wasn't just going to be those people, it would have been the city authorities for allowing it, right? So they're disturbed. When they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they let them out on bail. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, you know, Berea is, a, is about 75 miles away from Thessalonica. And so Paul leaves Thessalonica. You know, he's, he's in Philippi. He gets beaten and jailed. He goes to Thessalonica. He's only there for three weeks. Uh, when a riot breaks out, and now his brand new converts are saying, you better get out of town because they're after you, right? So he travels uh, the 75 miles to Berea, and, and I, I don't know about you, but I would think, like, gee, I'm going to take a vacation now. <laughs> but Paul immediately goes to the synagogue, and it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So you see, the Bereans enter into this, let's study the scriptures, right? And every day, they're looking at the Messianic prophecies and listening to the story of Jesus and saying, is this possible? Is this the fulfillment? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Right? And so they're, they're open, they're learning, and, and it says, many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. You notice they always mention women, you know, like, there, you know, there's this uh, uh, emphasis in the scriptures. Usually when you're reading through, it's an emphasis of men, you know, like there's 5,000 men gathered, and it doesn't mention the women and children that are there. Um, 
it's interesting to note that at the beginning with the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, there's an emphasis of highlighting women as part of the church um, and as the people of God. <clears throat> it says, so many of the Jews, now you see the difference here between Thessalonica and Berea, right? In in Thessalonica, just a few Jewish people, but lots of Greeks. And in Berea, it's lots of the Jews who come to faith. And so you'd think, okay, so Paul has moved on, you'd think we'd be done with Thessalonica. But the story continues. It says, when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea, also, they came there too, stirring up the crowds. So, imagine these Jewish leaders in Thessalonica are so upset with Paul and his message that it's not enough to kick him out of your own town, right? But they travel 75 miles, which back in those days would, would have taken significantly longer than an hour and a half, right? Would have taken days if you were on foot. Uh, on, you know, even if you were on horseback, it would have taken a while. So this is a major effort on their part to follow Paul to Berea to disrupt his ministry. And so you can see, uh, from Paul's perspective, thinking there's a whole bunch of brand new believers that he left in Thessalonica. They haven't been taught, they haven't been catechized, they haven't, you know, I mean, like, they haven't had a chance to establish a fellowship, and they have leaders in that city who want to destroy their newfound belief. So you can imagine Paul's concern for them. What is going to happen to their faith with these people who are so angry they're willing to travel to destroy Paul's ministry? It says, uh, and so in Berea it says, the brethren immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, and, and but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. So this is the story, this is the background, this is the historical context of 1 Thessalonians. When Paul arrives in Athens, we find out when we read 1 Thessalonians that uh, he's very worried about the Thessalonians. And so when Paul and, uh, excuse me, when Silas and Timothy join him in Athens, he immediately sends Timothy back to check on the believers at, in Thessalonica. Uh, and the whole goal is this, like, are they okay? Did, did they hang on to their faith? Uh, you can imagine if you were uh, someone who hadn't yet committed to the Jewish faith, right? And so you were kind of on the fringes of the Jewish society, you were kind of this new idea that there's only one God, there's not lots of different gods, uh, and you were entering into that, and then someone comes along and says, like, this God became one of us to deliver us from uh, sin and death, and you believed it, and then suddenly uh, you were being attacked and dragged out of your house and arrested. It would be easy to say, you know, those people, that, that whole thing was just a fluke. I shouldn't, I'm going to go back to my idols, because... The, I never got dragged out of my house when I believe in idols. I never got arrested when I believe in idols, right? And and this is just like the squabbling between these Jews and those Jews, and so obviously there's something wrong with this, right? And so Paul is looking at it thinking, these poor believers, right? So he sends Timothy. Now, Athens is 200 miles away from Thessalonica, so this wasn't a, you know, like a, you know, uh, it, Timothy would have been gone 
for a considerable period of time. And during that entire time, and you get this, when you read through Thessalonica, you get Paul's anxiety and fear and concern and love for the Thessalonians and, and how he's praying <laughs> for them. <clears throat> I just said Thessalonians, didn't I? See, I just used all those words interchangeably. Thessalonians, Thessalonians, you know. Anyway... <laughs> This is the, uh, the historical context. And so I, I have some homework for you. And this is the homework. I want you to read 1 Thessalonians, but I want you to read it in one sitting. Just one sitting, that's all, right? Uh, it's a very short book. It takes, if you just read it through, it takes 15 minutes, probably less, right? But I don't want you to just read it through. I want you to take your time. I want you to think about it while you're doing it. I want you to... Um, to underline phrases or verses that jump out at you. I want you to put like a little question mark next to things that you don't understand or people you don't know or things that don't make sense to you. I want you to notice the scriptures that actually speak to you, right? That, that like encourage you that, 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 or, or challenge you. And so that, uh, so that you're, you're getting the entire book and its entire context. You're, you're looking for those questions to ask and you're also listening for the voice of the Lord. Again, I want to thank you for joining me in this study. I look forward to being able to continue it with you. And so, we'll meet again soon and begin with Thessalonians chapter 1. God bless you.